Parashat Chayi Sarah. I want to dedicate this to two things. First of all, to the safe return um, of Daniel Shimon Ben Sharon, Perez, of Perez's son, who has been missing in action, along with uh, Itai Ben Chagit and Matan Ben Anat, Tomer Ben Karen, well, I think. Uh, and uh, they've been, most of them, missing, gone since... Since October 7th, as far as I know, Hashem should bless them to come home soon. Hashem. Some clarity for the family. And also, I know the yeshiva went uh, today um, to Rosa Lisheva Lubin's Alevaya. She was a chayelet bodedet. Uh, to pick up, come from Atlanta, come to Eretz Israel and decide my destiny is going to be with the Jewish people. <coughs> that is Parshat Chayi Sarah. That you're here forever. Um, it's it's there's just so much to say that such a person was buried on the eve of Parshat Chayesara. That's just where 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 the concept of Kvura was really introduced to the Jewish people of burial. Um, I want to tell you a quick story. I uh, many years ago, I. Um, had the occasion to visit Dachau. It's a longer story, but um, I was on a trip to Germany. I'd never been to Germany. I don't really look forward to going back. But I agreed to do this trip and to meet this person on condition that we did something. I just couldn't go to meet someone in a spa in Germany. and just So we agreed we would go to Dachau. So we drove to Dachau. And of all the powerful really powerful experiences that you have in this place, in this horrendous place. There's one that stands out in my mind. Not sure why, but when you walk inside the, what was the police interrogation center where the cells are, they've turned it into a museum. And hanging from the ceiling are these very, very large photographs of some of the people who were tortured and died there. And one of them is a fellow by the name of Martin Stiebel. And if you are curious to see his photo, you can actually look it up online, but I have a little copy here. Um, Martin Stiebel was born in um, 1899 in a place called Kitzingen in Germany. And he came from a a Jewish Orthodox family from Kitzingen. Um, His mother was uh, the granddaughter of the head of the Southern Jewish... Orthodox community, Mendel Rosenbaum. And as a young man, he fought in the World War, in the, in the First World War. In the 1920s, he became a, he was an accountant, and he became one of the leaders of the communist movement in Germany. And so, you know, early on in Hitler's career, they wanted to get rid of all the capitalists, the anarchists, anybody who could oppose Hitler's rule. Happened to be that a lot of them were Jews and that kind of played into Hitler's hands. So this fellow was arrested by the Bavarian uh, police um, and taken to the newly built Dachau concentration camp. Now you have to understand, it's 1933. The world doesn't really get yet what's coming and the Jews don't get yet what's coming. They're like amazed that this fellow became chancellor. And, and if you know your history and sort of that famous handshake and what happened with, with you know, the, the, the Prussian government and, and the burning of the Reichstag, this was overnight. And so this fellow is thrown into a concentration camp 
the, the torture. I mean, before I went to visit Dachau, I read a couple books. I wanted to prepare myself. Just to give you one example, when, when, a, when a person was brought to Dachau, the train or the buses purposely dropped them off like a kilometer and a half away so that they have to schlep all their stuff and run through the mud or the heat. And when they would get to Dachau, they would arrive at this bridge, okay, that crosses over this river, it's this rushing river. And and they would run in to this central, this umstagblatt, this central sort of plaza, this uh, open area, which was where the roll calls were taken. And I read in this book that there was a fellow who was a survivor of Dachau, and he told this story that when they were running over the bridge, right, a, he was passing an SS guard, and the SS guard suddenly picked up his rifle butt and slammed him in the side of the head. Now, you have to imagine a rifle butt. It's a heavy, slammed in the side of the head, knocked him off the bridge, and he fell into the water below. And he's like trying to get his bearings and trying to get up, and he suddenly, he understands. I mean, he's been around the Nazis enough. If he doesn't get back up there and run with them into the camp, they're gonna kill him. It's gonna be really bad. He's doing everything he can to get up and get out of the water. Now he's icy cold, it's the winter. And he manages to get up for the rest of the torture of the day. And he spent weeks trying to figure out what had caused this guard to hit him in the head. He desperately needed to figure it out so that it wouldn't happen again. It took him a while to understand. It was totally random. It was totally random. It might have been the two guards had a bet. It might have been just, you know, Balo. He was just in the mood to hit somebody in the head and risk killing him. That was the world they entered. When they got inside this large open plaza, there began a series of six to eight hours of torture. If it was the summer, they made them, you know, people left, they didn't know how long they were going for, so they took a winter coat. And they wore these coats, and they made them do sit-ups and push-ups. They were like, you know, little puddles of swill. They would have to drink from them for hours and hours, squats and knee bends. If it was the winter, they made them strip and run naked around. The whole idea was to break them as human beings so that you would understand there was no point to resistance. But this Martin Stiebel, he didn't understand the world that he'd entered. He, he's living in Germany. I mean, this was a democracy. Jews had rights, you could vote. He'd fought in World War I. So he apparently resisted. And he was eventually caught trying to smuggle a letter out to his lawyer to tell them what was going on there. So they threw him in a cell and they tortured him for six months. And eventually he was found hanged in his cell with his hands tied behind his back. That was called hanging suicide. Later, when they researched this, they discovered that the reason that a person sort of eventually was given this hanging suicide was because they couldn't get him to sign a confession. Right? The Germans still needed to have order and to show that if someone was in a prison, he had been guilty of some crime. So they accused him of whatever it was, and if he wouldn't confess, eventually they would just, you know, he would commit suicide. And then they didn't have to explain. And there was actually an SS officer who, um, who complained in 1935 of some of the conditions of what was going on there, because, you know, this is not how we treat prisoners. And he ended up on the Russian front and was never heard from again. That was the world of Dachau. Martin Stiebel is sitting in an isolation cell. He's being beaten daily. 
He's being tortured. He, he has barely anything to eat. He's turning into a skeleton. And he doesn't understand the world that he's in. How long did it take him to figure it out? How do you, I mean, I once told someone the story and he said, he must have been an incredible person. I said, what do you mean? He said, do you know what it was to survive six months in Dachau? And we don't think about these things. So that picture of this fellow, Martin Stiebel, he's a short little Jewish accountant, bespectacled, haunts me. I think about it from time to time. Like, do we know when the world is changing? And I'll tell you that story because I want to share with you two ideas in this week's parasha, and I think they're connected. The first is a very interesting pasuk. The pasuk in, in Parak Havdala, this is one of the thematic psukim of this week's parasha. Avram zaken babi amim, and Avram was old. It's actually a fascinating discussion because this week's parasha were introduced to the concept of old age. The concept of old age did not exist in the Torah. Whether it physically existed is anybody's guess. The Medrash has its opinions. But it didn't exist in the Torah. It's not mentioned in the Torah. People didn't get old. They just reached a certain point and the battery ran out. And if you're, you know, I don't know, when we were in the army, they came up with this new um, battery for our, our radios. You, know, you used to have this big radio that you carried on your back. Today it's like a little, you know, back then. And the batteries were weak. So they invented this new battery, and the new battery was like a big square, and the thing about this battery was it lasted like twice as long. Like it used up all the juice in the battery somehow. The problem with this battery was you had no idea that the battery was low. One minute it was working perfectly, and the next minute, boom, it just died. This was a problem. If you're out in the field on a mission, and all of a sudden your radio stops working, that's a big problem. So, you know, carry a spare battery, whatever it is. So that's how people lived. You lived till whatever, you were, you know, 537, and you had a perfectly normal morning for breakfast, then you sneezed and you died. That's what the mentor says. Avram, suddenly the concept of old age is introduced. Okay. And why, that's a discussion in and of itself. And then it says, V'Hashem berach et Avram bako. Hashem blessed Avram with everything. Avram has everything. Ask me an obvious question. Pardon? Well, no, you could think you have everything. I mean, I, you know, I guess everybody's, one person's old, another person's young. My father's, can I know her, my parents are 89. I was just uh, by them uh, last night, and we were talking, and somebody came to visit. I went there for a meeting with them, and he said to this fellow at one point, if you, if you should feel as blessed as I do at my age, you know, like, whatever. So, no, you could feel blessed when you're older. Yeah? Why is the word Pardon? No, we'll get to that in a second. No, come on, there's an obvious question. Hashem has given him everything. Sarah's dead. So how could he have everything? He lost his wife. If there's one place in the Torah it should not say Hashem Berachat Avram it's in Chayesara. Goes through this whole, you know, sort of difficult process of, of, of burying his wife. And he has it all, because his wife is buried. Ask me another question. Why is he remarried? Oh, that's an interesting question we'll get to, maybe. I'm not sure about today. No, come on, it's an obvious question. What does Bakol mean? 
We'll get to that too. Come on, obvious question. Avram has everything. Anybody know what the next story is? He's looking for a wife for Yitzhak, which means he doesn't have everything. So this is a strange pasuk. Rashi does something that one does not usually find in Rashi. Listen to this Rashi. I would expect Rashi says Rashi explains the contextual understanding. I would expect Rashi to say where else does the word bakol mean and how do we learn what this means? No. You know what Rashi does? Rashi does something you don't find. I feel like I'm in a Hasidic Jatish. He says, right, bakol ole begematria ben. The word bakol, bet is the second letter, two, kaf is 20, and lamed is 30, right? That's the numeric equivalent of the letters, which is 52, right? Not a complicated gematria. Ben is 52. Ah, it's the gematria of sun. Huh? I like Eisenhower, but he had blue pants. What? What does that mean? So Hashem blessed Avram with a son. And therefore now the next story is, so why is a son called Bakol? If he's missing, what does this mean? What is the concept of Bakol? Right? You know, it's interesting, right? In order to understand this, we really have to understand the concept of a bracha. Now, we've spoken about this before, but just for the purpose of making sure that everybody remembers and puts it in context, there are two fundamental explanations for the concept of bracha. Okay, the first is, well, they're not in this order, but from the perspective of our having discussed this in the past, uh, the first is Rav Kook, uh, and Rav Soloveitchik talks about this. Soloveitchik says that in this Pasuk, right, what does it mean? Some of them, unfortunately, say, Hashem increased Avram's life. Everything is increased. His age, he gets to be old. His wealth, Hashem finally gives him great wealth. And, as somebody just mentioned, at the end of this parsha, he marries a woman called Keturah, who may or may not have been Hagar, and he has many more children. So he increases his progeny. So Livarech is to increase. Now on a fundamentally simple level, Every time I make a bracha, it's an opportunity to increase the presence of Hashem in my life, right? If you're in the middle of a 72-kilometer masah, you're in the middle, and, and you don't know how you're going to make it through. You know one of the things used to keep me going? I knew that at the end of that masah, they were going to come out with this big pot that was going to be full of black coffee. And I was going to get one of these. And here I'm sitting, right? It's just a cup of coffee. But when I make a bracha on this cup of coffee... This coffee is such an unbelievable blessing because I didn't have to march 72 kilometers to get it. I just went upstairs, made myself a cup of coffee. Do, do, do you realize how good Hashem is to us that we can just get coffee? And every time, right, that, that Hashem created coffee. Does anybody know how coffee, how coffee was invented? Anybody know? Yeah. No? He like threw the beans in the fire. Right. In, in, in the Turkish army in World War I, uh, there was an a, 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 a sh- a artillery shell attack. And apparently it hit a donkey that was laden with beans. They were meant for something else. And the beans fell in the fire. And the smell was amazing. And, you know, the water and the chvesnish. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a great story. Kashbach created coffee. Unbelievable. Do I, do I appreciate that Hashem blesses us with coffee? Right? So livarech is to increase. Now, by the way, Misha Beirach Avotenu, Avram Yitzchak, Hu Yivarech Et 
What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we should appreciate the chaylim, the soldiers who are fighting for us. It doesn't mean that, you know, Hashem should keep them safe. It means that when they're fighting, the presence of Hashem should be increased for them. Because if you know that Hashem runs the world and you're fighting because you believe you're fighting, you're living the mitzvah that Hashem asks of you to do, then you're fighting a different battle. And if you want to know why Israeli armies succeed, it's because we understand this. So the constant bracha, when you bless your children, can you think of anything in this world that more increases the presence of Hashem in your life than your children? Do you understand that you are a vehicle to increase the presence of Hashem for your parents? It's a radical idea. So that's one idea of bracha. What's the second idea of bracha? Anybody remember? Yakedas Yitzchak, Rabbi Nabachi, anybody? Yeah? Excellent, right? When I see a pool of water, the automatic question is, where'd the water come from? Right? So Hashem is the Brecha. Hashem is the source of everything in our lives. Hashem Beirach at Avram Bakol means that Avram understood that everything he had comes from Hashem. Everything. It's all Hashem. Everything. There isn't anything that isn't Hashem. This war is Hashem. Medinat Yisrael is Hashem. Hamas is Hashem. It's all part of Hashem's plan. Do we always understand it? No. Now I want you to understand what this means is that the reason Avram at the end of his life has accomplished so much is not because of how much wealth he has. It's because his perspective has changed. He's able to see everything is coming from a Kurdish Baruch. And that took 10 Nisyonot and a lifetime of work. If you could really know, now listen, we can say this, but do we so live it that it becomes natural? You know? You have plans to go away for Shabbat. Okay. And then, I don't know, who knows what could happen. You know, there could be a rocket attack. All the buses say we're not going. and So you're not going there for Shabbos. You know, you could get, you get stuck in a bus stop somewhere. Who knows what could happen? That's the way the world works. So, do you get frustrated? Do you get challenged? If you get frustrated, which is a normal human reaction, in that moment that you're frustrated, you don't get that Akash Bakr runs the world. If you could really know that Hashem runs the world, you would never be frustrated. It's just, okay. You know? By the way, you want to understand the power of Hasidus? A true Hasid understands that this Rebbe. If a Rebbe tells a Hasid, listen, I need you to hop on one leg, he just starts hopping on one leg. That's what you do if your Rebbe tells you to do something. So I grant you that the, the world we live in is a little different, but there is something powerful about that. So Abraham Avinu understands that everything comes from Gosh Baruch Hu. His perspective is different. Now let me share with you a second idea and then we'll put them together. So, Avram wants to bury his wife. Okay? This is the beginning of the part. Wants to bury his wife. It's an interesting question why, why the first portion of Eretz Israel ever purchased by a Jew was a burial site. On the one hand, how depressing on the other hand, when you buy a plot of land for burial, that's eternity. It's almost as if the Torah is telling us, no, that this is where you are forever. By the way, so Avram wants to bury his wife. And he wants to bury her in a particular cave. Why does he want to bury her in that cave? Anybody know? Because nice Adam and Chava are buried there, according to tradition. Not just a nice cave. This is the cave. And you can look up Midrashim and what, what, exactly what he wanted there. Okay. 
But the problem is somebody else owns the land on top of the cave and you've got to dig down to the cave. Right? What's the fellow's name who owns the land? Ephron Achita. He's a Chitaite. He's mamash. Uh, uh, he's a serious over I mean, he's a pagan with a diploma in paganism. Okay? And Avram says, I want to purchase this plot of land so I can bury my wife. Right? Now, look at this. This is an amazing piece. Ephron is the ultimate Chita. He's living amongst the Chita. He's, he's Chiti big time. Okay? Right? Um, so Ephron Achiti answers Avraham in the listening range to the ears of the Chittites. In other words, all the Chittites can hear him. That's a strange thing for the Pasuk to say. Why do I care that the Chittites are listening? He's doing a business deal. Avraham wants to buy a, a plot of land. Is he going to sell it? What's going to be? But okay. Um... To all those who are coming through the gates. In other words, this is a very public moment for him. He says, no, 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 listen. I'll give you the field. And I'm going to give you the cave. You can have it. I don't need, we don't need to be. You're, you're such a prince of men. Right? Okay. So now Avram bows down, not before Ephraim. He bows down before the Amearetz. Everybody there. It's a very strange... Then he talks to Ephron. Are you getting this yet? The two of them are having a discussion. But this discussion isn't really just about the two of them. It's bigger than the two of them. Everybody's watching this. Okay. If you don't mind, let me pay you. So what's that about? Okay. Let me bury my dead there. Now, you just offered this Hebrew the field. Because presumably you're a wealthy guy. I don't know. You've got lots of fields. Or it's just a dumpy field. You say, no, really? It's okay. Take it. And everybody hears this. And then I'm just, no, I really want to pay you. So what would you do? You'd say, okay, what would you like to pay? What does Ephron do? Anybody remember? He says, you know what? Fine. Two million dollars. <laughs> We're going to negotiate, okay? So that's very strange. Now you're Avram. You're Jewish. We know how to do this. He says 400. You say 100. He goes down to 300. You say 2. You settle on 250. But only if you cut the grass, right? That's how we do things. So Avram's like the worst negotiator in history. Avram says, okay, sure. Here's 400 Kika Kesa. Take the $2 million. Right? That's because, you know, Avram's wife wasn't there now, so she wasn't in the What's the matter with you, right? Okay, right? Okay, could be, right? So what's going on here? And there's more, you'll... So here's an interesting question. Does Ephron really want to sell his field? What if he doesn't? What if he really doesn't? We'll get to why that is in a second. But what if he really doesn't? Now, if he doesn't want to send this to sell the field, he's got two options. Option number one is not going to sell it to you, but you could bury your dead there. Now, two things happen if Avram buries Sarah in that field, in the cave, and it's really Ephron's land. The first thing that happens is he's beholden to Ephron. And the second thing that happens is 
whenever Ephraim wants, he can change the deal because Avram hasn't buried it. Right? Not only that, but if Sarah is buried in Ephron's field, then she's basically a Chitite. You know, this woman that I told you about earlier, who ended up in Kibbutz Nirim um, on that awful October 7th morning, who was trapped with her daughter and son-in-law in a bomb shelter with the smoke coming in, the house burning around them. So the interviewer, right, this, by the way, if you want to hear this story in its entirety from this woman's mouth, it's a really powerful story. Um, there's a, a podcast called Honestly. There's a, a woman called Barry Weiss, who's a former reporter for the New York Times. She has a fascinating story. And she's interviewing this. And if you, you want the link, you can send me a WhatsApp. And at one point, Barry Weiss asks her, so do you think you're going to leave after this? Like you came on Aliyah, you came to Israel, but you go back. And she says, we will either win this war or we will die here. But we're not leaving. It's such a powerful line. Right? Like this is our home. And we have this home here because we can't rely on any other home. And this is our home forever. When Sarah is buried in the land, is it a statement that you're a Chittite? Well, if you're buried in, in Chitti land, then you're a Chittite. Right? If you... If you, you know, if, if you're buried in a Christian cemetery, then you're an American who happens to be Jewish. If you're buried in a Jewish cemetery, then you're Jew who happens to be American. Those are two very different things. So, Avram doesn't want to go for that. He's basically making a statement, this land will be ours for eternity. If, you know, my, um, uh, my brother-in-law, married a fellow who was a Tzioni, married a, a, a girl whose father was very Tzioni. He was a Holocaust survivor. And he lived in America, he lived in Rochelle. And um, he survived, I think, uh, seven different camps. Um, his story is an incredible story. His name was Moshe Avital. If you live in Riverdale, went to SAR, you probably met him at some point. And he was Nifter like, during COVID like a couple years ago. And although he lived in America, he absolutely insisted on being buried in Israel. Because he said, like, I may be in America temporarily. They had an apartment here. That's not my home. So Avram is making a statement. So that one option is not happening. Avram wants to buy it. Okay? Once you're talking to somebody, it's just a question of what the price is. So then Ephron comes back with a crazy offer. Like, you know, imagine if uh, you say to me, I don't know. I see you have a, a one volume of Mima Maki, the original, you know, of Raphael Mashri from the right after the Shoah. It's out of print. It's very hard to get. I want to buy it from you. I said, no, really, I don't want to sell it. And he said, no, no, whatever you want. Like, I want to buy it from you. I said, you know what, fine, a million dollars. What am I basically saying to you? Right? I'm not going to sell it to you. Right? Not, we're not going to negotiate, but I'm not going to sell it to you. So if Ephron comes back with such a crazy price, it might be because he doesn't want to sell it. There's also, by the way, another possibility. Who is Ephron Achiti? Who ever heard of Ephron Achiti? Ephron Achiti's moment in the sun is that he gets to negotiate with Avram. And all the Chitites are watching this. This is the moment in the sun. So he doesn't want this negotiation to end. He doesn't want the negotiation to end. He wants it to go on. He doesn't want to sell and if, you know, he expects Avram to say, well, that's a ridiculous amount of money, so I'll find another cave. And now he's created a controversy. So, putting aside for the moment that Avram takes the wind out of his sails, what does this mean? 
You know, when we, um, when I go recruiting for a writer, some of you may remember this, maybe I mentioned it at some point this year, I have this game that I play. It's just an interesting survey, you know, just totally non-empirical, but interesting nonetheless. You know, because um, I want to make a point about maybe one of the things that I think makes your right the unique. So uh, we're sitting in a room. I don't know who here is from SAR. You may remember this because when I showed up to SAR last year, I blew my mind. There were like 50 of you. Like I never saw anything like that. Like, right? It was like crazy. So, so, so I asked you all this question. And most of you, if I went to recruit wherever you were being recruited, so then I, you for sure remember this question. And I asked all the guys, like, okay, I'm going to ask you a question that you cannot get wrong. You cannot get this question wrong. And this has nothing to do with recruitment because I'm not going to remember 54 guys and who said what. It's just to make a point. So I'm going to ask you a question that you cannot get wrong. Not only that, I'm sure that you can answer this question in less than three seconds. And then I asked them, you know, there are only three possibilities, three possible answers to this question. Yes, no, or maybe. Do you believe in God? Yes, no, or maybe. And then I look around the room and I say, I just point in each one has to say yes, no, or maybe. And we go around the room. I would say 90, 95% of them said yes. A few said maybe. There's always one who says no because he wants me to remember him. Okay, fine, fine. Then, after, I, and it takes them a second. Everybody comes up with that second. If I did this here, you'd have the same thing. And then I said, okay, so what is God? And there's this moment, this pause. And it's like, it's like you know, and you're looking at someone and he feels like, he looks like a deer who got caught in the headlights. Like, he doesn't know what to do with that question. Like, and by the way, that is the right answer. Like, how could you possibly know what Hashem is? But how could you, how could you say you believe in something you have no idea what it is? And, and it's fun to watch a whole room full of guys who have just been through four years of yeshiva high school and eight years of yeshiva day school, and they have no idea how to answer a question, which should be one of the most fundamental questions that we teach our children. And they're not wrong. And that, to me, is one of the things that makes this place unique. Like, you know, how do we deal with this? How do we develop a relationship with Hashem? What is Hashem? Okay. So I was doing this one year, early on in the story of Araita. And there was a boy. And I, I was actually sitting with him in a hotel lobby. Longer story. And I wasn't sure about this kid. You know, does he really want what we have to offer? So, so I'm talking with him. And I said, you know, just out of curiosity, like, do you believe in God? You know? He says, yeah. Now, I was a rookie. This is like the, the first year. We didn't have a yeshiva yet. It still boggles my mind that anybody came. Why would you come to a place that didn't exist yet? But okay. And his parents are sitting there. Like, that's another rookie move. Like, how could you have a conversation with his parents sitting there? But okay. And he said, yeah. Like, sort of, of course I believe in God. And then we got into this discussion. He ended up coming to a writer. Now it's about a month in to the year. And we're sitting in that back room with the first class of a writer. And I get into this. I used to teach morning shir. And I get into this really intense discussion with them. And, and, you know, so I'm talking to the boys. I say, look, you know, we're not recruiting now. And the masks are off and we're here. And I was being kicked out. I just want to understand where you're at. You know, do you believe in God? What do you think? What are your struggles? And we get to this boy. Do you believe in God? He says, no. So I was a little surprised because I remember he said he believed in God. Right? So I didn't want to call him on it. Either something radical happened between the time he was recruited or more likely, you know. So we got into this discussion. And uh, I went over to him afterwards. I said, you know, it seems to me like I'm watching this, you know, there's lots of questions and I'm trying to share with you what my perspective is on them, but it doesn't look like you're looking for answers to the questions. Now, you're already here. This is not recruitment anymore. So, you know, I'm curious, like, where your head is at, but there's nothing wrong, like, that's where you're at. He said, yeah, I guess I really don't want answers to those questions. Okay, you don't want to know what Hashem is, you don't want to know why we dive in, you don't want to know what, what tefillin means. 
And we got into this intense discussion, and I asked him, why don't you want to know? He said, do you want the honest truth? Because if I find out that this all makes sense, then, I have, then, then it's going to ruin my life. So what do you do to ruin your life? I'm not going to mention the universe because I don't want everybody to figure out who he is in case he one day listens to this. But, although I don't think he'd mind this. But, but he's just like, he got into this really, you know, solid university. And um, he had made a deal with his parents because he didn't want to go to yeshiva in the worst way. But they made a deal that he could go to this university, which didn't have a lot of Judaism, if he came to Israel for the year. And the one that seemed so the least likely to give him a hard time was Oraitas. He came to Oraitas. We've changed a little since then, but okay, right? And I realized, I can't give this boy what I want to give him because he doesn't want to receive it. I had a complete change of perspective. It wasn't judgmental. It wasn't about right or wrong. If I'm a chef, and I want to cook you, you know what, never mind chef. Group of parents got together, they wanted to feed you again. Because that's what Jewish mothers do, we want to feed you. So they've got some awesome things coming your way at the end of this Parsha year, right? Quincy's on top of it, okay, right? And, and if I'm not mistaken. And, but if you're, if, if you're not hungry, no matter how good it is, we can't give it to you. Look. Now, I'll tell you the best example I can think of. I mean... First of all, if Ephron doesn't want to sell and he doesn't want to negotiate, you can't negotiate with him. You've either got to buy him out or, and Rashi, by the way, points out, you know, right? If you treat me nice, then I'll be a Toshav. But if not, I'm going to be a Ger. I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I just fought a world war with 300 men. I'm going to shecht you all and take this field anyway. In other words, there is no negotiating. Now we're living in that reality. And we'll finish with this thought because we have to finish. We're living with that reality. You know, I listened to, um, to Anthony Blinken, who is the Secretary of State of the uh, United States. Came to visit Israel, you know, trying to stand by Israel. And some of the things he says are great, to be fair. You know, I don't think life is black or white. Until he gets to the question of what he thinks the solution is. And there are two things he said in an interview, and I heard Condoleezza Rice, who was past Republican Secretary of State, and she said basically the same thing, and it blew my mind. He said, obviously Israel can't take over Gaza. Like, we have to, you know, the, the, the best scenario would be to be able to strengthen the Palestinian Authority and put it back in there. See the hand? I don't get that, but okay. And then he said... And the United States supports and believes in a two-state solution. Now, when we finish, you know, the Shia, the Q&A downstairs, we're going to start because three people asked me this question this week. So I promised I'll come up with a topic. So we're going to talk about what is a Palestinian. I keep uh, dancing around that issue. Usually I like to do that at the end of the year, but we're going to have a discussion about what exactly is Palestinian and why I keep saying, well, whatever that is. So we can talk about that. Um, but you have an entity. The reason you can't negotiate with those that call themselves the Palestinians, is not because we're better than them, not because, because they, they, they don't want what it is you want to offer. They're not interested in a two-state solution. And by the way, we're, I mean, I'm, I can only speak for myself, I'm not interested in giving them a two-state solution either, but that's a separate discussion. If someone doesn't want what you have to offer, if they're not interested in negotiating, Right? You, know, you keep hearing these rallies on campuses and in cities across the world, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I agree. I think we should, you know, get 
people who don't want to see this as a Jewish state out, and then we'll be free. But okay. But that's not what they mean. And you can agree or disagree with their opinion, but at least you have to recognize what it is they want and what they don't want. They're not interested in a two-state solution. So you can't, you can't debate that topic. You can't negotiate that topic. It is important in life to understand what it is that the people around us want. And this is not only on a national level. This is on a personal level. You know? Everyone in this room has something special to give to the world. And Bezrat Hashem, you're going to find someone to share your life with. And that person, whoever that is, they need and want what you have to offer. And you have to want, need, what they have to offer. And if you do, you can build an incredible life. But if you don't, it's a waste of time. Right? If I met the most amazing girl, and she wants to marry a guy who's going to be rich, and she's thinking lawyer or doctor in Scarsdale, I'm the wrong guy for her. I'm just the one that doesn't interest me. Right? I don't know why it interests anybody, but it certainly doesn't interest me. If, if, if I have the most amazing Gemara Shia, it's amazing. There's a boy who comes to you, he's all excited, and he came to a right there because he thought there was a basketball camp. It doesn't matter how great the Gemara Shia is. He's not interested in receiving it. So I can't give it to him. Figuring out what we want and figuring out what the people around us want is a critical piece in understanding. Avram changes his perspective. Avram understands that Hashem runs the world. And Avram looks at Ephron and says to himself, what is it that this person wants and does he want what I'm offering? And he sees, and this is Midrashim, that really the only way to get this field is to give him such an outrageous amount of money that he can't say no. Because he figured out what Ephron wants. Sometimes what someone else wants, you can't give. Right? The only way to give, you know, sort of Hamas what they want is to, you know, line ourselves up on a bridge and jump off. And hopefully we don't want to give that to Hamas. So there's nothing to talk about. There's no ceasefire, there's no two-state, there's nothing to talk about. And sometimes Hashem says, I'm going to make this clear for you. It's not clear, there's just groups that don't, I'm going to make this clear so you understand this. And I, I wonder if that's sort of written between the lines in this first parsha when we first connect to the land of Israel. You know, way back, 4,000 years ago, a Jew said there is a place in this world that is so beautiful, so powerful, and so meaningful to me that I'm willing to die for it. And I want to be buried in that place. And that's this place. So Hashem should bless us, Pesrat Hashem. Rather than die for Eretz Israel, we learn to live for Eretz Israel. And that, and that, and that, all of these discussions become esoteric discussions because soon all of this is behind us and we get a little closer to Gula and Hashem should bless us that the hostages come home soon and that their families are comforted and the wounded heal and the soldiers are safe and Bezrat Hashem, you know, all needs to happen on one day. Everybody will just stay on a bet. We'll do it again next week. All right.